When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode of the Birdshot Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt and Final Rise. On this episode of the show, we're talking prairie grouse, including a potential endangered species listing for perhaps the lesser-known lesser prairie chicken with Executive Director of the North American Grouse Partnership, Ted Cook. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 180. All right, welcome to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, everyone. We will be joined by our guest, Ted Cook of the North American Grouse Partnership in just a moment, but I got a few things to run by you first. Thank you to Patreon patrons of the Birdshot Podcast. Your support is always greatly appreciated. This being the first episode in July, I do not have a winner of the June giveaway to announce just yet as I'm recording this on June 30th. Episode scheduled to release tomorrow morning. Had a few new patrons sign up this week, and anybody that potentially signs up today would still be eligible for that June giveaway. So I'll hold off on announcing the winner of the June giveaway, which was a gift basket. Included some stuff from Onyx Hunt, Yukonuba, Shooting Sportsman, Piner's Grouse Camp, Birdshot Podcast. We'll announce the winner of that gift basket on the next episode. But for this month and the next three months, we're going to work on getting the Patreon patrons geared up for hunting season. Got some big giveaways right now. The way I'm going to do this is I have three specific items to give away. We will give away one each of the next three months, and it will be winner's choice until we're down to the last month and there's one item left, unless we have new stuff to add in. I'll keep you updated on all that. But we've got three big items to give away, and I want to give the winners the chance to choose which item would better complete their gear setup as we head into the fall season. So first and foremost, supporting partner of the show, Final Rise, we have got up for grabs a winner's choice complete vest system from Final Rise. That would include the Summit Series vest, the Legacy, or the Sidekick. Check them out at finalrise.com. 
whichever one you prefer. Matt and the team at Final Rise are going to get you set up with for the fall. That would be item number one. Item number two, or perhaps I should say door number two. Sounds more fun. Door number two, a Dogtra Pathfinder 2 GPS tracking and training unit. This is the latest GPS caller from Dogtra. Pairs with your smartphone, uses the power of the smartphone and mapping and technology that you've got there. That communicates with a handheld receiver that does have a training button on it now. I believe that's new from the Pathfinder 1. I never had the Pathfinder 1. I have had a chance to work with and use the Pathfinder 2 over the summer. So this is the tracking and training Pathfinder 2 unit GPS collar for you and your bird dog. That would be door number two. Door number three, a pair of properly sized First Light Sawbuck brush pants. That's right. The Sawbuck brush pants from First Light quickly became one of my favorite pairs of Upland Honey pants last fall. Nicely balanced pair of pants that got me through relative early season. I didn't have them right away. I didn't have them out on my prairie trip, but I got them shortly after and wore them consistently all the way through to the end of the season. They held up great. They fit great, feel great, and just an excellent pair of bird honey pants. So first light sawbucks, door number three. To quickly recap, the next three months, Patreon patrons of the Birdshot Podcast are eligible for these monthly giveaways, one item a month, winner's choice, final rise vest system, Doctor Pathfinder 2 GPS tracking and training collar, or a pair of First Light Sawbuck brush pants. You can sign up for as little as $5 a month. We'll send you some Birdshot Podcast can coolers and stickers, and you will be eligible for all monthly Patreon giveaways. You can do so at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. All right, still getting a bunch of entries into the gun fitting giveaway with Del Whitman. We're running that through July 14th. So if you're hearing this and you haven't heard about that, Go back to episode number 177, Patterning Your Shotgun with Del Whitman. Give that a listen. Anybody willing to go to Traverse City, Michigan can be eligible to win. Send me an email to nick at birdshotpodcast.com. Put gun fitting in the subject line. We'll get you entered, and we will be drawing a winner for a free gun fitting with Del Whitman later this month. All right, we're going to the listener mailbox. We have done this from time to time on the podcast. I'd like to do it more, I think. I get a lot of emails and feedback and messages and comments from listeners, which I greatly appreciate. I love hearing from people that listen to the show. And I want to dip into the listener mailbox a little bit and share some of that stuff on the podcast when appropriate, perhaps encourage folks to write in more. A lot of times it's just general feedback and comments on a particular episode of the show, but oftentimes listeners share a bit more of a story or some of their history with bird hunting, or how an episode related to some experiences they've had. And that stuff is always really, really cool to hear about. That's the kind of stuff that I envision sharing with others that are out there listening, as I think everyone can appreciate that kind of thing. So I've got one for you today from a listener, Scott. I'm just going to read this for you and maybe plant a seed for others out there listening. If you've got stories or questions or other ideas or anything in particular that you think would be fun to share with other listeners of the Birdshot Podcast, please feel free to send those in to me to my email, nick at birdshotpodcast.com, and we'll see where this thing goes. But for now, Scott wrote in, Happy Father's Day, Nick. Episode number 178 with Ted Clark was, as always, another exceptional experience. Growing up, I read all of the outdoor periodicals available, including rummaging through one of my uncle's decades worth of old field and stream and outdoor life magazines stored in his barn. Hunting and fishing trips to all sorts of places captivated my young mind, but none so much as those to the north woods of Maine. 
The mystical powers of that phrase still stir my soul and remind me of my father's stories driving a log truck in those places of adventure and wonder. Dad could spin a yarn, as could my grandfather, about logging, hunting, and just being out of doors. On this Father's Day, I am extremely pleased to be reminded of such good times as those and the joy instilled in my heart by the lives of so many hardworking people whose entertainment outdoors was no less physical than the work they performed. It's pleasing to hear Ted's stories and as as usual, yours as well. Keep up the great work. And again, happy Father's Day, Scott. So, of course, thanks for the kind words to listener Scott. Very much appreciated. And I hope you can see why I felt like that would be something worthwhile sharing on the podcast. I don't do so just to toot my own horn. It is much more so to share the thoughts and feelings about upland hunting, the woods, the birds, the stories, the places, the people, what they mean to all of us as passionate upland bird hunters. And I got that feeling from Scott's email. So hope you enjoyed that. And again, please feel free to share your thoughts, your feelings, your questions with me at the Bird Chat Podcast inbox. But either way, thanks as always for tuning into this episode. And with that said, let's move into our conversation today with former guest of the show, Executive Director of the North American Grouse Partnership, Ted Cook. I've been thinking a lot about prairie grouse lately, as I often do this time of year, looking ahead to likely my first or at least one of my first hunts of the year will be hopefully chasing prairie grouse out west. And just so happy to get in contact with the folks at North American Grouse Partnership. There's an article that they had circulated recently about this potential upcoming endangered species listing of the lesser prairie chicken. And I thought it would be a great idea to get Ted back on the show, get an update from North American Grouse Partnership, talk lesser prairie chicken, talk other prairie grouse species. And that is exactly what we did on today's show. So I want to wish everybody a very happy 4th of July. I hope you all have a great weekend. Enjoy yourself. Have some fun. Not too much fun. Take care of those bird dogs. Be mindful of fireworks and noises, especially if you've got new pups out there. But have some fun. Enjoy the summertime while it lasts. And with that said, let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Birdshot podcast of the North American Grouse Partnership, Ted Cook. Welcome back to the podcast, Ted Cook. It's great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me back. It was episode 116. We interviewed you on the podcast and we were at that point, it was with your with John Hoffler, I believe. Yes. Uh, yeah. We were talking primarily North American Grouse Partnership and probably touched on a number of the topics that we'll, we'll get into today. But it's, it's great to have you back today. The main topic of our conversation today is not so great, but we're going to get into that. But before we do, how's, uh, how's summertime out there in Idaho, Ted? It's kind of well, nice. Yeah, boy, I tell you. So uh, weather, right? We all talk about weather. Right. So uh, <laughs> we had a, uh, a foot of snow on January 4th this year, and then our next most significant snowfall was not until April 5th. And then it didn't stop snowing or raining <laughs> until um, mid-June, just a couple weeks ago. And so uh, we actually went from 58% of snowpack April 1st to 158% of snowpack on June 1st. That's how much wow. rain and snow we got, or snow we got up high up in the mountains in Idaho. So it's been a very cool, wet spring. But then uh, yesterday we hit 99 degrees in my little mountain town of Garden Valley, Idaho, about an hour north of Boise. So... So we uh, had a long, cool, wet spring, and suddenly it's we're into the heart of summer. So uh, yeah, 
kind of adjusting to the whiplash. Yeah, well, that's a that's that sounds familiar to the the spring we had around here. Kind of winter hu- kind of hung on for a very long time, and then all of a sudden it was it was summertime. And yeah, yeah, it's funny. Is I think Idaho is one of those places that the uh, people say this about. I think no matter where they live, but you know, if you don't like the weather in Idaho, you wait 15 minutes and it'll change. You know, people say that about Duluth and all over the yeah. place. <laughs> yeah, and it's true, of course. It's uh, you know, with the with the elevation differences in Idaho, uh, right? You know, you re- and then mountain valleys and aspects. You know, you really can go from zero to sixty in 2.8 seconds. You know, it's a uh, yeah, a lot of variability. But you know, it's fun. We we love the four seasons, of course, and uh, snowshoeing in the wintertime and uh, floating the rivers in the summer. It's great. That sounds good to me. How long have you lived out there? Well, uh, my wife and I uh, actually both grew up in Connecticut, just outside of New York City. My dad took the train to Manhattan every day for 30 years. And of course, I dreamed of living and working in the West and having a beautiful wife and 2.3 children. And so uh, (laughs) I got my undergraduate degree from Southern Connecticut State University in New Haven, where I met my wife. And we moved to Pocatello in 1988, Pocatello, Mm -hmm. Idaho in 1988, uh, for me to go to grad school and then to Boise from there. And we moved away the last few years of my career, but then moved back three years ago to retire. So we've been in Idaho pretty much since 88. Awesome. Yeah. I know we got some of your backstory when we interviewed you the first time and I, I got a refresher on it listening to uh, on the wink podcast. You were recently featured on there. Speaking of weather drought uh, was a big topic of conversation last year. Now you've just commented on cool, wet spring What's the feeling on on conditions out there? Have you got have you got a significant amount of moisture now, or was drought even a concern where you were last year? Well, um, let's see. Last year, I think we had a pretty average year. Um, okay. This year might end up penciling out as average, although, like I said, our snowpack went way up in the months of uh, April and May. But um, you know, the timing and the nature of it makes a big difference, right? And so, yeah, when you're still getting you know the occasional snowfall and you know, early to mid-May, um, down at the elevations where we were, that's really hard on critters of all shapes and sizes, especially upland birds. So I don't know is my answer. And it'll probably be variable, you know, across the landscape. Down around sure. Boise, Chuckers will probably be okay. But, um, you know, Sage Grouse might have taken it in the shorts in some mountain locations. So yeah. mountain valleys, you know, where Sage Grouse occur. So we'll, we'll see. But it's a good question. Yeah. Well, and I know Idaho is is known to be a pretty good mixed bag state. I mean, the, there's yeah. a diverse you know species of upland birds out there. What do you uh, what do you primarily spend your time chasing in the fall? Well, it's, if it's upland birds, it's uh, you know in, in the in the traditional upland sense, it'll be um, chuckers. Okay. Uh, I have rough grouse around my home because we're in the mountains. Uh, really, so it'd be fun. Yeah, yeah, that's fun. But uh, really, the thing I love to chase the most is sage grouse. They're just uh, and I, not that I do it very often or often enough, but the first, uh, the first upland bird my yellow lab ever fetched was, uh, sage grouse. I took, uh, two buddies and I out hunting and, uh, we managed to get our limit and she cut her teeth, so to speak on sage grouse. And, uh, I'm always proud of that fact. And sage grouse are, you know, they're kind of the romantic, I don't know, elk of the upland game world. You know what I mean? They're this, uh, yeah. you know, you kind of, I mean, if you don't live in safe, you don't, if you don't live in wild grouse country, you probably, you know, you hunt pheasants, which is great and stuff, uh, but you probably dream of hunting wild grouse and of all the, you know, the, the, the sage grouse is like the, the biggest, you know, trophy <laughs> Yeah, wild yeah. grouse in my opinion. And so that's why I really enjoy it. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I definitely get that sense in, in, I've been around it long enough to hear the way people talk 
about the sage grouse and refer to it. Um, there is that, there is that sense there. It's, it was always kind of a foreign bird to me. I mean, I've been a, I've been a grouse nut for a long time, but obviously being where I'm at, it's, it's primarily rough grouse and I've slowly gained more exposure to the other grouse species, but they've always had, had kind of a soft spot in my heart for them. But, um, sage grouse is, they definitely, uh, you can, you can tell the way people from the West speak about the sage grouse. It's, it's got, a, it's at, it's at a different level in a way, which is yeah. important, obviously, given their situation, right? Yeah, and, you know, we're going to talk about lesser prairie chickens today and the fact that yeah. they're about to be listed under the Endangered Species Act, which is incredible, uh, and it's incredibly sad to think about when we look backwards and forwards in time. But uh, the other sad part of it is sage-grouse aren't far behind, I'm afraid. You know, they, mm. I think uh, scientists have recently estimated uh, sage-grouse are losing about 800,000 acres of habitat a year. And so... Uh, you know, that's just unsustainable, right? So, uh, yeah. you know, they've been petitioned to be listed under the Endangered Species Act and have been found to be not warranted, but then, you know, repetition and litigation and um, you know, a lot of environmental groups are pushing for that. And uh, at some point, you know, they're going to be right Yeah, uh, the, the, with, a, uh, with a trend that we're on right now, which is really unfortunate. So if you want to hunt sage grouse, get out there and do it now. I, a lot of right. states like Idaho have reduced their bag limit to one bird a day and mm. like two in a season or so, you know, I mean, it's, it, it's anymore. It's a, I don't want to say a token hunt, but uh, you know, I mean, you, you do, you don't do it for the meat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not that, not that upland bird hunting is about meat, but you know, right. Yeah. Yeah. Shooting a sage grouse is becoming a real unique singular trophy experience and, and worth the effort. But I guess all I'm saying is get out there and make the effort sooner than later while you, while you still can. Yeah. And that's, uh, the writing is on the wall, so to speak. And I feel like we've, we've seen that before and yeah, unless something drastically changes, that's yeah. probably not going to change. Right. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, with, with sage grouse, it's interesting. I don't, you know, uh, I know you're on the, uh, uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin border there, Nick, and it's, uh, you know, Aldo Leopold, maybe many of our listeners have heard of mm. Aldo Leopold in his book, uh, his seminal book, a sand County almanac. Uh, but in there, he has a chapter called Cheat Takes Over, and he wrote it about cheatgrass and the threat that it poses to Western landscapes and Western sagebrush ecosystems. And that chapter, that 73-year-old chapter, is even more relevant today than when he published that, when that book was published in 1949. So really? although the old Cheat Takes Over, we should, we should do another piece on sage grouse because that's what's happening. Is what, what happens is cereal overgrazing allows this invasive annual grass from Asia to infiltrate the understory of sagebrush habitats. And it keeps building and building over the years and the decades. Finally, when that habitat burns, the sagebrush burns up, and the cheatgrass is a fire-loving species, and it comes roaring back the next year and outcompetes native bunch grasses and sagebrush, and then it burns very frequently after that, say every 10 to 25 years, whereas you know, sagebrush ecosystems without cheatgrass historically burned you know, once a century or two. And, and so uh, that's probably the single biggest reason we're losing sagebrush ecosystems so rapidly. And people say it's fire, but it is not fire. Fire has always been a part of sagebrush ecosystems. It's cheatgrass. And we can look to Aldo Leopold for his wise words of wisdom on that from, uh, from 1949. Yeah, that's, I did go on one sage grouse hunt in 2018. And being, a, I guess, maybe being somebody that's more constantly surrounded by trees. The sagebrush was very interesting in that 
when you find out some of that stuff is, I mean, it can be what, 30, 40, I don't know how old it gets, but some of that sagebrush is super old. Yeah. Over a century. Yeah. 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 Wow. That's just, just incredible. And, and you just, maybe you don't think about that when you're looking at this, you know, plant that's not necessarily above your knees, but. Um, well, yeah. and that's in, in sage. Yeah. So what's, what's really interesting, there's, uh, I don't know, nine different varieties of sagebrush, right? And, uh, one of them is called Wyoming and big sagebrush and I'm six feet, four inches tall. And one of the places I love to bow hunt elk has Wyoming big sagebrush that's taller than me. Mm. And those plants are well over a century old. Now, it may even be, be in the places where you and I you know, hunt sage grouse. Yep. And they're on these bare ridgetops with very low, uh, slow-growing sagebrush. Those, it may even be some of those plants are up to a century old as well. They, they are just so in such harsh environments that they, they grow that slowly. So, yeah, no, sagebrush is a very long-lived species that does not love fire but yeah. it's never been a problem in the past because in the past because it's burned so infrequently um that it's always had time to come back and sagebrush ecosystems you know live with fire on a very low slow basis but cheatgrass yeah. changed the equation yeah and obviously sage grouse being aptly named yeah how dependent on sagebrush is it makes up just a significant component of their diet to where yeah. without, without it, they're, they're basically yeah, lost. So, so uh, scientists refer to sage grouse as sagebrush obligates. Mm. They're obligated uh, to have sagebrush to survive. And it's yeah. pri- primarily a, w- a winter food. Um, they'll eat it year round, but they depend on it. They must have it in the wintertime. Got it. Got it. Okay. So like any other, most other grouse, they're probably in, in the more favorable times of year, they're taking advantage of insects and all, all anything yeah, they can, it, they can get their beaks on basically. Yeah. So sage grouse will do that and they'll be out in a farmer's, you know, hay field and, uh, in early summer, you know, with their chicks eating bugs, like you say, and, uh, yeah. and be far, you know, hundreds of yards away from sagebrush in the moment. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it's gotta be nearby or they can't survive. Yeah. When you brought up. Although Leopold, I thought you were going to get at the his quote about the grouse representing a millionth of the energy, which I think he was maybe talking about rough grouse at that That's point. Right. But I but I liked, you know, it's it's no less relevant for right. about any other grouse. It, and uh, it's it's a great quote from Leopold, and it certainly applies to the situation of the lesser prairie chickens as well. Yeah, it, it, it's something like uh, a grouse represents only a millionth of the mass or energy of an acre. But take away the grouse, and the whole thing is dead. Correct. Yep. And that—that that is, and, and we all—I mean, as hunters, we all, right, wildlife lovers, we all know exactly what he means, right? I mean, without wild places and wild things in those wild places, we're all poorer. Which you know brings us to the lesser prairie chicken, right? I mean, why do you care about lesser prairie chicken? Well, I think a lot of us know innately why we love wild things and wild places. But uh, you know, Leopold really nailed it on that. Indeed, he did. Yes. Well, we will transition into the the meat of our conversation today. Before we do that, Ted, why don't you just give us a brief reintroduction of yourself and the North American Grouse Partnership, and then we'll kind of dive in on lesser prairie chickens here. Yeah. So again, uh, Ted Cook, Executive Director of the North American Grouse Partnership. Grew up back east, but uh, got out west as quick as I could. Been here ever since. uh, Loving life. I spent 30 years working as an endangered species biologist for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. The last eight years of my career, I worked on either sage grouse or lesser prairie chickens. So I uh, got a lot of background uh, involved with yeah. a couple of the sage grouse listing decisions uh, back in the 20 teens. 
uh, been on you know the listing decision teams uh, for both the bi-state population and Greater St. Charles Range wide, both of which we made not warranted decisions. Of course, got sued. And at least on one of those, I think the service lost recently. But anyway, um, and, and again, the, the the trend is in the wrong direction for those critters too. So it's even though we might have felt it was not warranted back then, maybe it is now. But uh, anyway, then less prairie chickens worked on that, and uh, then I retired three years ago and. Uh, some friends with the North American Grouse Partnership said, hey, you should apply for the executive director position. I said, no, I'm good. Thanks. And now here I am. Right? So, and, and what you realize is, you know, uh, Woody Allen, a you know, film producer, has this quote, 80% of life is just showing up, right? And I looked around. I was, you know, and I, I wanted to still contribute, but, you know, I wanted to be able to step away. 30 years working on endangered species is, you know, beautiful career. I loved it. But, you know, it's it's time for a change, right? So, uh but as I was stepping away, I realized if I didn't step in with a grouse partnership, there are things that wouldn't get done or, you know, our attention might shift. And, and this being me here with you and, and your listeners today is a great example of that. I, you know, fortunately, I have all this background and experience and you know, I've been out of the service for three years, which actually is, I think, enhanced my perspectives on some of the things. Sure. No longer being a federal endangered species biologist, now having been with a nonprofit for three years, that includes more of a hunting component. And and so uh, I'm really happy to be here. I'm happy to be with the, with the Grouse Partnership and uh, advocating for uh, those things that we all love, especially your listeners. I know we're all kindred spirits in that regard. Indeed, yeah. All right, so let's jump into lesser prairie chicken. Perhaps we should set the stage. Let's separate lesser prairie chickens from greater prairie chickens. Yeah, and so, that, so a little more about Grouse Partnership. We include all 12 North American grouse species in our mission, but frankly, we've really, we're really a very small but mighty uh, science-based policy advocacy group. That's what we do, or science-based policy advocacy. And really, we focus on the four prairie grouse species. And the four prairie grouse species that we include are greater prairie chickens, lesser prairie chickens, sharp-tailed grouse, and sage grouse. And the reason we're focused on those is because those are the four species that are most in decline. There's, you know, rough grouse have issues back east, maybe less so out west, although there are a few data. Um, ptarmigan are doing okay, uh, and, uh, you know, there's several ptarmigan species in North America. So, uh, but, the, but the prairie grouse as a group are doing poorly. And interestingly, the North American Grouse Partnership was founded in 1999 in the basement of Dr. Tom Cade. He's the man who founded the Peregrine Fund. Mm. and help save peregrine falcons from extinction and establish the World Center for Birds of Prey in Boise, Idaho, and notably. And so on the day that peregrine falcons were delisted under the Endangered Species Act uh, in 1999, actually the morning after, he got a group of folks together and said, man, we're all falconers. You know, prairie grouse are the things that falconers love to chase the most. Prairie grouse are declining. Let's form a group to save prairie grouse that became, they begat the North American Grouse Partnership. And so and so that's re- another reason why we focus on the four prairie grouse species. So within those, we've got greater and lesser prairie chickens. And uh, really, it's a geographic distribution, uh, slight size, uh, behavioral differences, but very closely related. Um, but the, but so the geographically, uh, lesser prairie chickens are the southwestern Great Plains, say from uh, the southwestern quadrant of Kansas, south and west into southeastern Colorado, eastern New Mexico, uh, western Oklahoma, west Texas. Mm. And uh, and that's what distinguishes you know greaters from lessers is that geographic split and uh, size difference. I honestly uh, I'd have a hard time telling the difference, but you know b- people with a pra- hunters with a practiced eye or scientists can. I think if you put a bird in their of each in their hands, they can probably tell you. Sure. Yeah, I watched a couple quick YouTube videos on wanted to see the the lecking dance of the prairie chicken, and I think I saw both 
lesser and greater. And yeah, that would be uh, you'd be hard pressed to to tell a difference unless you maybe had them in your hand, probably. Yeah, or side by side. And yeah. so, uh, my wife and I did have the great good fortune of watching Lesser Prairie Chickens last a couple of lack. Uh, dance on their lack a couple of years ago in eastern New Mexico, Milton Sand Preserve, and uh, our friends with uh, New Mexico Game and Fish helped connect us to an opportunity. And and I, I tell you, man, anyone, if you, <laughs> all of your listeners need to put on their bucket list to watch a prairie grouse species on their lacks. I've, yeah. I've seen yeah. sage grouse multiple times. I've seen lesser prairie chickens once. I've seen sharpies a couple times. I haven't seen graders, but you know, similar to lessers. And it's just that the passion and the energy and the beauty and the, the light, you know, the raw <laughs> uh, the power of, of that experience is awesome. And, and notably this one time, you know, you hear about, you know, these lecture areas where there's very little vegetation, it's mostly clear and the males mm-hmm. make great big shows, elaborate shows to attract females. And the, you know, it's a female choice society, kind of like with humans, right? The males strut around and the woman says, I'm going to pick. Right. <laughs> so, so that's what happens here. So the hens come in and, uh, I'd always heard of this happening. I, you know, I'd seen multiple different lacking moments for sage grouse and sharpies, but not for lesser. So I know the lesser, like, and I heard of this happening, but we're, we're watching and just like in an instant, like in three seconds, Somebody turned out the lights. Every bird disappeared. There was not a noise to be heard. And then all of a sudden we hear. And a golden eagle goes buzzing like three feet off the deck. Wow. Right over the leg. <laughs> and you didn't get one. But you, man, if I was a lesser prairie chicken, I would have died from fright. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. And he came. Yeah. We were in this little pop-up blind, right? And he came right by our blind within 20 feet. You know, the sound. Wow. And the, the speed. Yeah. Oh God, it was amazing. Really, really cool. Yeah. I have yet to see a lek in person uh, or a lekking display. Um, I've got the best opportunity I would have would be sharp tails here. There's, there would be some places yeah. that I can get to. It's kind of, it's definitely on my list of things to do, but yeah, what a unique, I mean, I think it's just, they're such year round. These birds are, they're so cryptic and, and yeah. elusive, you know, but then they, they have these, these lecking displays. I mean, it's, it's such a contrast, but it's just so neat. I mean, yeah. what a cool depth of experience as far as, you know, just being a, a bird lover. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, bird lovers come from around the world to, right. you know, yeah. central U.S. to see these birds put on displays and there's these, you know, lek festivals and people, you know, and private landowners try to make a little money by, you know, charging folks to come out and see a lack in their private language, which I think is great, right? But anything it takes to help conserve these birds. But uh, yep. it really, I mean, again, all your listeners, I know, you know, I, I got a lot of Upland her Bird Hunter buddies, and every one of them would, if they haven't already seen birds lacking, you know, they would love to. Yeah. <laughs> this, I feel like I should know this. Maybe it's an uneducated question, but is there a discrepancy between the prairie grouse and their lecking display, and obviously ruffed grouse, they drum. And I was yeah. going to ask you this when you mentioned you had uh, you had rough grouse. Do you hear them drumming and stuff in the spring? Oh yeah, and, and okay. I was going to bring that up. So great, great, great question. So ruffs and uh, I guess they're called duskies now. I'm an old timer, so I used to call them blue grouse right out here in the west, right? But and Douglas fir forest. But uh, you know, ruffs and blues. It's it, when you see an individual male putting on his display, it's reminiscent of prairie grouse, right? You right. Know, he's giving it at all, you know, and he's puffed up and he's looking his best and mm-hmm. he's making his noises. And, and it's incredibly cool. Obviously, you know, people are probably most familiar with rough grouse drumming just because they're so widespread. Right. And, uh, it, and it's, yeah, I mean, when I run into it, like when I, I turkey hunting or hiking in the springtime and I hear them, I really try to make an effort to see, and they're hard to see. Mm-hmm. You know, their calls are way less visual, although, 
visually, uh, I think the visual component is important from their perspective when the, when a female rough grouse gets in close. Correct. But you know, they're not they're not out in the open displaying to mm-hmm. bring you know birds in visually from far away. Yeah. Um, and then, but then uh, dusky grouse for those who haven't seen it is similar. And the only time I have encountered duskies displaying, it was kind of in a group. It wasn't a lack, but it was the situation was I was out spring bear hunting. And uh, here in Idaho, and I was climbing up this uh, dug fir ridge, and you start, you, they have this loud hoot, and you can hear this hoot from like across the canyon, right? Yeah. So I hear this hoot, and I'm climbing up the slope, and all of a sudden, bam, there's this male dusky right in front of me at the base of a large dug fir, kind of a cleared out area in a little log, kind of like the way rough grouse in a log, and he's hooting and strutting, and he, mm-hmm. he, he, he looked like he wanted to kick my butt. <laughs> right. so, so I, I just went around him, you know, out of respect. So I climb up and all of a sudden hooting up ahead and there's another one. I climb up uh-huh. another one. I climb up another. It was like they were in a line at the base of these large dug firs down this long, you know, steep slope in Idaho, uh, each trying to call. They were each in an individually different location, but they were in proximity and in very similar sight, almost like a like a large, long, steep lek. I, I don't uh-huh. think that's what it was. I don't, they're not lack but but anyway i yeah so if anybody's had the chance to see some of those forest grouse do their thing too it's still special you know yeah gearing up for your next hunt check out ugly dog hunting company for all your dog supply needs ugly dog hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you whether you're looking for dog collars gps tracking devices kennels beds leads training equipment or first aid supplies ugly dog hunting carries it and a whole lot more New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit uplandguncompany.com. Yeah, no, it, yeah, all of the the displaying behaviors uh, amongst the grouse are just, I mean, they're certainly unique to each one. But yeah, just you, but united in their passion. Yeah, I mean, right. Yep. Like I said, I came across that desk and I'm like, I'm not going to tangle with you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, funny story about uh, I actually uh, just got my mountain bike out for the first time. It was on Father's Day, actually, so not long ago, and I came flying around. I was riding through a place. I I used to walk my dogs through there a lot, and it's a place I've seen grouse before. I hadn't been in there in a while, and came flying around a corner, and sure enough, I saw this grouse right on the trail, stopped, and I I didn't really know what was going on at first because she was – I say she because in in hindsight, it was a female, and there must have been chicks. I didn't see them, but she was – she had her tail out and she was, had her wings out. So she yeah. was doing what, what she could to intimidate me. And she came right at me actually. Yeah. She, she dang near chased me off the mountain bike trail. And then she kind of <laughs> hopped off and I, and I slowly, I went by her. I, of course I didn't have my phone. I was pretty disappointed because it was a beautiful red phase, rough grouse. She had a copper tail bend. It was just really, cool. really cool. And the sun was shining, but I went by her and she came chasing me again. And I couldn't yeah. believe how fast she was running through this vegetation with her tail and wings out. Yeah. And and, uh, yeah, she wanted me out of there, so yeah. I respected that. <laughs> you know, are we lucky to have the experiences we have or what? I mean, I... 
You know, yeah. Wildlife in America is owned by the public. We have these public lands, and mm-hmm. we get to have experiences like this that we're talking about. It's uh, it's that's my passion. I mean, that's why I wanted to be a biologist, and you know, beautiful life and two point three kids and all that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm right there with you. So, all right, lesser prairie chickens. Actually, I wanted to and let's weave this in, but the heath hen. That was something that you mentioned briefly on on the on the wing podcast, and the heath hen. I'm I'm very uneducated on and i know it's like it's kind of this uh like maybe a symbol and it's something we point to a lot when we talk about endangered species but it was a is that a grouse species the heath hen it was the eastern prairie chicken of the of its day so you think about a greater prairie chicken or a lesser prairie chicken the, the heath hen was the eastern prairie chicken of its day and uh, habitat loss and fragmentation which is the primary threat to almost all endangered species today yeah was a factor for heath hen, but it was also, uh, it got killed too much by early, you know, European settlers, settlers in North America. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so it's funny because I actually, you know, I live in Idaho, but today I'm actually coming to you from my brother's house on Cape Cod. And the last place where the last lesser, uh, sorry, where the last heath hen lived over a century ago when it became extinct was on Martha's Vineyard, just a you know, a few dozen miles away from where no I am. No kidding. Which is kind of funny to think about that. But yeah. uh, but just to, by way of example, you know, so Martha's Vineyard, a pretty open place with grassland habitats. That was the last place, place heath hens lived before they became extinct. Wow. And so, uh, and again, overutilization. And, and again, yeah, so I, I actually have ancestors who came over on the Mayflower, so I'm sure my ancestors helped drive heath hens to extinction. <laughs> so I've got this connection. To same, with my, same with my wife. So yeah. 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 So, so I've got this connection to grouse that goes across space and time here in North America in ways that I never imagined until I started thinking about it. Right. But, uh, but anyways, it was the Eastern Prairie chicken and occurred on, occurred on Eastern prairies and was uh, likely primarily hunted to extinction back in the day. Yeah. Uh, and then the other, the other species that is functionally extinct in the wild but still remains in captivity is the Atwater's prairie chicken, mm. which is really kind of a subspecies of the of the greater lesser prairie chicken species complex. And they're on the Texas coastal plains. And and the lesson we can learn from our journey with Atwater's that's primarily habitat loss, fragmentation. And the lesson we can learn from them is just how incredibly hard it is to restore prairie grouse species. Prairie grouse, we mentioned these lacks we talked about earlier, they're very social. And they need like a minimum population size in order to have multiple males on multiple leks. And this they can trade among leks throughout the spring. And then multiple females to visit each of those multiple leks. Well, getting from zero to multiple of multiple of multiple is really, really hard. And to do it with individuals of the species that have enough experience in the wild to not get eaten. Because, you know, grouse are made to be eaten, right? I mean, correct, <laughs> they're, yeah. they're, they're critter food, right? And so, uh, and so to have enough birds out there to get enough knowledge and experience to live long enough to populate enough of these population centers is an incredibly hard thing to do. And that's the lesson we can learn from Atwater's Prairie Chickens in coastal Texas. And we've learned that lesson elsewhere by that are you know, state of Nevada has worked really hard to try to restore sharp-tailed grouse in Nevada. And, mm. you know, one cheat grouse fuel fire wiped out, you know, gosh, nearly a decade worth of work there. Wow. And, uh, yeah. And so the lesson learned is don't lose them in the first place. But yeah. we're incredibly close right now with lesser prairie chickens. We've lost the east hand completely. Yeah. We've lost Atwater's prairie chicken functionally in the wild. We can't let lesser prairie chickens or sage grouse or any of the others follow in those same steps. Because once we lose them, Good luck. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, since we're kind of making the rounds, I, I recall this may have been from my conversation with you and John, some conversation about the Columbia sharp tail. Yeah. Columbia was sharp that, tail. Were we yeah. talking about, because that's kind of a geographically specific sharp tail grouse, correct? Yeah. That's, that's similar. The, uh, Atwater's prairie chicken, the coastal Texas is, is, is to the, uh, greater and lesser prairie chicken as the Columbia and sharp tail grouse in Eastern Washington is to Sharpies, uh, yeah. the Great Plains. Yeah. Okay. That's right. Got it. And they're very, very rare, very threatened. Sage grouse, similarly, we have the Gunnison sage grouse, which is already listed as an endangered species in Colorado. And then we've got, uh, oh gosh, well, sage grouse in eastern Wyoming, anyway, kind of a disjunct, a bit of a disjunct population there that are extremely threatened. Okay. Yeah. Lesser prairie chicken. Let's let's talk about the stakes at the moment and some of the, the really the announcement that we're waiting on. Yeah. So the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service was petitioned to list lesser prairie chickens. You know, so long ago, now I forget, but it's, you know, the early 90s, I'm going to say, early 1990s, and uh, warrant, they found it was warranted but precluded by other higher priority actions. The service's budget is list, limited enough that they can't get to everything on their candidate list or listing in a very timely way. Uh, and then in the, the uh, Endangered Species Act has a provision that requires the Fish and Wildlife Service to take action within two years of finding that listing may be warranted. And the service doesn't do that, and so they automatically get sued by the environmental groups who, who petition, and the service automatically loses. And so they finally built kind of a schedule that says, okay, we acknowledge we're going to lose lawsuit after lawsuit, so we're going to try to tackle things in this order on this time frame. And so that's kind of the track that lesser prairie chickens and all other species are on in our country these days. And so yeah. uh, anyway, the service ended up listing the species in 20 – I should know these dates better. I think that's 2012. Uh, industry groups sued uh, and won and got the bird delisted in 2014. Uh, environmental groups petitioned a list and, you know, service said, well, it didn't respond timely enough, as I already mentioned. And anyway, uh, so the service finally published a proposed rule to list the species on June 1st, 2021. They're due to make a final listing decision 12 months later, which is June 1st, 2022. They haven't yet. They're late. They they tell me, you know, I call and, you know, everyone's like, where are you, where are you at? They're with their, It'll be here any week now, so we're we're anticipating, you know, first half of July, we're going to hear something from them. Yeah, uh, I I anticipate they're going to list the species like they did back in 2012, uh, if for no other reason that chickens are significant, lesser prairie chickens are significantly worse off today than they were in 2012. Right. And if they already found that listing was warranted in 2012, and they already proposed to list them in 2021, I, I think my money's on them uh, finalizing their listing rule. Uh, here in a couple of weeks, and then we'll have uh, lesser prairie chickens listed as an endangered species. And, and just think about this: when settlers waded through the sea of the endless sea of grass in the southwestern Great Plains, the Native Americans lived in the southwestern Great Plains and fed themselves on lesser prairie chickens. They could never have imagined the day that all that would be left is small postage stamps of prairie habitat and an endangered species. Yeah. But that's where we are today. Simply do a do, a, and, and we have got. Programs like farm bill programs and other programs that can help turn the tide, but we lack a strategic, focused, and sustained uh, and sufficient effort to implement programs like farm bill programs and others to help private landowners who own 95% of lesser prairie chicken habitat to help those private landowners uh, help us turn the tide. And we have a lot of private landowners who love prairies and love chickens. And so it's just a matter of our collective will to try to stop the decline and start restoring chicken habitat. Yeah. So that's interesting, the the amount of private land that makes up 
the remaining lesser prairie chicken habitat. Is that what is going on? Is that due to because you mentioned New Mexico? I mean, that's a state that has a ton of public land. Is it? Is it? Are some of the states just primarily private land where the prairie chickens are, or what? What is it about the public land that is not making up lesser prairie chicken habitat? Yeah. So, well, if you think of where this is, right? So, southwestern Kansas, western Oklahoma northern and western texas i mean those are all that's a lot of private land yeah yeah okay for and, and and really uh you know most of our public lands are wilderness or you know forests and rocks and ice wilderness you know what i mean and so sure. the yeah. great plains prairies nobody's really cared about and uh and uh you can grow a cow it's flat and it's got grass right so you can grow a cow or yeah. you can uh break the sod and, and plant row crops right and so you can make money off it and so consequently most of the range of our of our prairie chicken species uh, are, are privately owned. Okay. And what they need are large, unbroken tracts of prairie. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. So lesser prairie chickens, uh, prairie chickens in all four species, you know, the greaters and lessers, sharpies and sage grouse, do not like tall structures. Yeah. So you put it in a wind farm, you know, in a really tall, you everyone's seen these tall wind turbines by now. Um, I mean, that, that one wind turbine alone will, will knock, prairie grouse out of an area, you know, a mile to two miles around it, uh, depending on where and how it falls in the landscape, just, just, just erecting one tower, right? Yeah. Uh, Eastern red cedar is a big threat coming in. Uh, mm. Historically, the primary threat for lesser prairie chickens, though, has been breaking out uh, prairie uh, and rangeland and grassland habitat for farmland. Uh, and so uh, really, at the end of the day, lesser prairie chickens require native grasses and forbs and the bugs that go with it. And that's what we're lacking, and it's becoming increasingly broken out. Yeah, and, and urbanization, uh, roads, right. um, oil and gas development, those are all current threats that continue to chip away uh, yeah. at lesser chicken habitat. So the, the usual suspects in a, lot of, in a lot of regards, but when it comes to the, the tall structure thing, that's, that one is – that's an interesting one, it's, and the – I know the Pheasants Forever biologist, he mentioned something. They had a like a rule of thumb about tall structures and as it related to pheasant. And yeah, I, mean, I had pheasant, heard that. And they're a lot less sensitive to tall structures than, say, a prairie grouse, right? I, I hadn't heard that. That was fascinating. Yeah, he said something yeah. about uh, if there's – for every tree, you know, you, you draw a circle – X diameter. I don't know what it was. It was, it was the height. And then the, yeah, yeah, they, yeah. they had a, a, a short formula to figure that out. Yeah. And, and of course we've all jumped pheasants out from under, you know, say Russian olives along a stream here in Idaho mm-hmm. or something like that. But, but his point was nesting habitat is compromised by taller structures, even for species like pheasants. Yeah. That was interesting. Right. I mean, it's easy to, to sort of lay out that list of things that are working against the lesser prairie chicken, but I think there's some conversation to be had around the idea that there is a way that they can coexist on a working landscape. And I think that involves cattle and grasslands. And so there's a, there's a difference there between grassland and say row crop and the way that could benefit lesser prairie chickens. Is that correct? Yeah. And, and, and so there is hope. There's definitely hope. Um, the, the shortest and, and best example to give is, uh, I don't know, two thirds of all remaining lesser prairie chickens uh, live on 30-year-old CRP lands in western Kansas. Hmm. And CRV, CRP is Conservation Reserve Program under the yep. Farm Bill title, Conservation title of the Farm Bill. And so uh, if we did it once 30 years ago, surely, you know, we can do it again, right? That's, and that's the question. And, so, and the answer is, well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but, it, but what happened 30 years ago is there was a confluence of events that resulted in 
payments that were high enough for landowners to go ahead and and accept them for a 30-year long contract because their ability to make money off those grounds was low enough at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had enough money overall in enough of a concentrated area. And so CRP takes farm ground that was broken out and returns it back to grassland. And in that particular application of that CRP program there at that time, they required the use of native grasses and forbs to replant. And that's why we have lesser prairie chickens there today. So we've done this before. But the bottom line is... If you buy or 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 acres of ground in western Oklahoma or Texas or whatever, wherever, you, you got to make an income off of that. You, right. know, you can't just, I mean, most most people, right? <laughs> it, it's, yeah, it needs to be incentivized in a way. That's just how, how the modern world works, correct? Yeah, and even Leopold speaks to that. You know, what we need is a system of incentives to help yeah. the landowner do the right thing. Because these landowners, you know, most of them want to do the right thing. They want right. chickens. They want grasslands. They want to be able to make a living off raising cows, but it's a real struggle, you know, anymore. It's not a great business model. Yeah. And so if we can complement that by saying, okay, you provide, you know, enough grasses and forbs of enough of a height, you know, without oil and gas wells or, or towers, and we pay you X amount, you put that together with the money you make commercially off cows, and let's have that be enough to sustain that person and all their neighbors going into the future and will be successful. Yeah. What are the... Are those structures in place? Uh, is there is there progress that needs to be made in order to make it more palatable for somebody to to consider lesser prairie chicken in their private land development? Yeah, and so right now the way a lot of these farm bill programs are set up, it's like, well, we'll pay you eighty percent of the cost of growing native grasses and forbs, and landowner, you got to chip in twenty percent. And the landowners even want to take advantage of that and try to, but again, it's like, I mean. If somebody, I, my wife and I own 12 acres in, in Idaho, you know, and if somebody said, look, we really want to grow an endangered species on your land, you know, we'll pay 80% of the cost, but you need to pay 20%. I'm like, really? I mean, I just, out of the goodness yeah. of my heart, I need to sacrifice my ability to, you know, raise cows on my 12 acres. I need to, I need to cut my herd by X number of individuals and, and, you know, just give that to the, you know, right. the average, average American. For the, for the, the greater good. good. Yeah, yeah. 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 For the greater good. Yeah. 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 And, and, and it's just, it's, I don't know if unreasonable is the right word. It's, it's just At not some a, point that could be, that's going to be a challenge and it's going to be lower on the priority that your life may get in the way. And then that priority yeah. is, is one of the first to go, right? Yeah. Am I, am I going to no longer put money into my kid's college fund right. so that I can give Americans more or less prairie chickens yeah. as much as I'd like to, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to raise more cows and put the money in my college fund. And, you know, I'm sorry that chickens can't live on my land anymore. Yeah. You know, that's the, that's the outcome. The, the current way these farm bill programs are implemented kind of lead down that path. Yeah. It, it's not a, not a huge, um, or, or I'd say it's, I think it's easy to understand that from a, from a landowner perspective on, and why that is and why if we want to be successful, ultimately we need to help to continue to change these incentives or increase them in a way that it makes it more of a win-win, right? That's what, yeah, that's, it, that's where the best conservation happens. Yeah. And, and, you know, Americans have made it clear that, um, they want, uh, to conserve endangered species. That's what the endangered species act said. They want to sequester carbon on these lands. They want clean air and clean water and healthy soils and healthy vegetation. That's why these farm bill programs are designed, you know, built in the first place after the dust bowl, in the 1930s is to help landowners do a better job being stewards long-term. It's clear that Americans want to pay for all this. It's clear that landowners want to provide all those goods and services to Americans. 
But the only thing it can monetize effectively right now is cows because there's a commercial market. There's not a commercial market for carbon. There's not a commercial market for wildlife habitat. There's not a commercial market for healthy soil and clean air and clean water. And so we're just behind the times. And, and, and frankly, I don't, you know, we've, I work with some landowners who are like, screw these government programs. Let's develop commercial markets where I can sell clean water and clean air on my land and wildlife sure. habitat on my land. And I will willingly do so. I will, I'll grow half the number of cows and a lot more chickens and clean water and clean air if I can monetize that like I can monetize cows. Right. And that's a perfectly reasonable expectation, in my opinion. Yeah. And I think that that type of thinking plays into something like maybe the National Grasslands Act, which I do want to get to. Um, but before we do that, all right, so if the listing for, for lesser prairie chicken happens, how does that how does that change the situation? What does that entail? What implications are there? Yeah, so great question. So what happens when chickens are listed? Well, uh, a lot of reason, times the reason why a lot of environmental groups want to list an endangered species is because it brings regulatory tools to the table to compel conservation. But I'll tell you, where 95% of the range of the species that are on private land, regulation ain't going to do it, mm. <laughs> right? I mean, one, the Fish and Wildlife Service doesn't have the interest. Two, they don't have the staff to knock on every landowner's door and you know, look over their shoulder. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so it's just unreal. And, and, and every landowner can just, you know, slowly provide less and less quality chicken habitat until there's no more chickens on their land. And they're really not going to be in violation of any regulations under the Endangered Species Act. You know what I mean? It's, uh, I would say, you know, when, if, if uh, law enforcement wants to prosecute somebody for unauthorized take of an endangered species, the U.S. Department of Justice will say, okay, show us the body of the endangered species, show us the dead, right? And if you're just grazing your grass shorter and shorter every year, you know, you're not going to find a chicken laying dead in the middle of the field right. that died from a lack of cover, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. And so regulation is not going to be the answer for lesser prairie chickens. And I, and, and I know a lot of landowners fear it, right? The endangered species are really scary. And I know it's easy for me to say because I don't own lesser prairie chicken habitat. Sure. But as a 30-year career endangered species biologist, I can tell you, regulation uh, is not going to be the answer here. Um, and so incentive-based programs like we're talking about, like farm bill programs, and even better, if we can develop commercial markets where these landowners can sell wildlife habitat credits, um, that that would hit the ball out of the park right there. Is that, obviously that that resonates with me. It's a, it's perhaps an exciting prospect amidst, uh, you know, a, a bit of doom and gloom here, but is that high in the sky at this point or are there models and stuff that can that prove prove that concept yeah and so there are models in fact there's even a tool sitting on the table as we speak which uh when the service finally makes a decision to list chickens might get more utilization there's a, mm. um, a habitat conservation plan uh to mitigate for the effects of oil and gas development for example so if oil and gas wants to develop they can maybe buy credits from this program that'll turn around and pay landowners to provide high quality habitat for either in perpetuity or 30 years. I'm not sure. So, okay. so, so some of these tools can, can exist right right now. It happens a lot with wetlands. You know, there's wetland mitigation credits. Yes. Somebody wants yeah. to fill in a wetland. They can buy credits on a market somewhere nearby, whatever the parameters are. There's lots of parameters that govern where and where and how, but, Got it. but yeah, so, so this is done, you know, carbon markets. Uh, we haven't bit the bullet here in this country, but you know, that's definitely a thing you can pay to sequester carbon uh, on lands and, and rangelands are, uh, really good at sequestering carbon. A lot of people mm -hmm. think forest lands are, but forest lands accumulate carbon, new carbon stores very slowly. Yeah. Grass accumulate quickly. So, uh, yeah, so there, there are examples of these natural resource markets that we could 
and, and I'm not, I don't know much about them. That's why I don't really talk about them in much detail or advocate sure. very passionately, Nick, because uh, I'm not the right person, but we could talk about getting someone on and talk, talk, talk about those ideas if you wanted to, but it's, yeah. it's definitely a real thing and could happen here. Yeah. Actually, maybe some of your listeners will help us. Too. Yeah, absolutely. I would encourage folks to write in or if they have more knowledge on that, but that, yeah. that is exciting in that there could be some, some of these incentives could be, could it could be put in place. All right. So let's talk about the, the recovering America's wildlife act and the yeah. national, the grasslands act and how those two things could play a role in this. Yeah. And so let's say less prairie chicken is a great example, right? So used to be a species that you could hunt in the lesser prairie chicken states, which meant that state agencies could spend uh, Pittman Robertson dollars, which is excise taxes on the sale of hunting gear and you know, ammunition. They could spend that on lesser prairie chicken programs and lesser prairie chicken conservation. Well, finally, all the chicken states, you know, years ago ended all their hunting and it makes it harder for them to justify spending PR dollars conserving lesser prairie chickens. So they got to find other funding sources and it reduces their ability to work on and help conserve lesser prairie chickens. That, that is incredibly ironic that because of the loss of opportunity to hunt, the species gets less conservation, but right. hunters pay for conservation in this country in a, not universally, but you know, in a, in a very significant way for many, many species. Yeah. And so what RAWA would do recovering America's wildlife act is it would, uh, raise, uh, uh, taxes to give to state agencies to conserve non-game species like lesser prairie chickens so the states can get back in the game in a big way it'd be a real game changer for species like lesser prairie chickens because uh, they wouldn't have to throttle back so they wouldn't have to throttle back so much on working on them and then you know other species maybe that don't even get hunted but um that are non-game species that are threatened or they're, they're concerned about their well-being so that's what recovering america's wildlife act would do it recently passed the house uh and the senate uh, in committees and i think is due to go to a a floor vote maybe in both or no, the house already voted it on the floor. Anyway, it's very close. We're really close, hoping yeah. that's going to happen this year. Yeah. Very exciting. Very exciting. Yeah. And that involves these species of greatest conservation need state, that's wild, right. state wildlife action plans. There's that's a, right. there's a system for implementing that. But yeah, again, the, the irony being, yes, you, you lose a hunting season on this species because it is in dire need and you lose the ability to fund, restoration or conservation on that species we should work to change that that's right hunters should have a big interest in seeing the recovering america's wildlife act passed I, you know hunting season were ended you know seasons were ended on lesser prairie chickens many years ago and lesser prairie chickens continue to decline why because hunting is not the threat mm -hmm. habitat loss is the threat and so we need a tool like recovering america's wildlife act to let us continue to work to conserve species like that that we can no longer hunt and that we don't want to see end up where lesser prairie chickens are today about to be listed under the endangered species act yeah and what about the grasslands act that was a pretty big topic of conversation whether it was last year or earlier this year i don't recall exactly but there's some parallels there to to wetland restoration i believe in this yeah. country and and sort of following in in the footsteps of that and what a great success that was yeah how how can, how can that come into play here so this is a really neat story, and uh, we've been uh, working to brief uh, many different congressional offices this year on the need for a North American Grasslands Conservation Act, similar to the North American Wetlands Conservation Act from a long time back, 1980s. Um, and and the, the data points there are 
Uh, there's recently, uh, it, your, your listeners can Google a 3 billion bird study, I think is what it's referred mm. to colloquially. And so what that showed is over the last 50 years, bird species across several different habitat types have declined significantly in almost all cases. They've declined more in grasslands than any other habitat type. 40% population decline of grassland bird species over the last 50 years, which by the way, if I haven't said it already, I don't think I have. Grasslands are the most threatened ecosystem in North America. Yeah. Grassland, I'm going to say it again. Grasslands are the most threatened ecosystem in North America. And where have bird species declined more than anywhere else in North America? Grasslands. Okay. Now, where's the one place where bird species as a group did not decline and, in fact, increased slightly over the last 50 years? Wetlands. Wow. Waterfowl did not decline and, in fact, increased. Why is that? North American wetlands Conservation Act. That's why we need a North American Grasslands Conservation Act right now. And so Senator Wyden from Oregon has drafted a bill. He's been looking for a Republican co-sponsor. has not yet been able to find one. It's getting pretty late, you know, in the legislative season. And so, you know, midterm elections coming up, it's starting to look a little grim. But, hmm. but this can't go away. And, you know, for all of the upland bird lovers, you know, listening on this podcast, Keep North American Grasslands Conservation Act on your radar screen, and and make sure it happens. And and we we've talked about Farm Bill a lot. And one question that gets asked, and for any of you who think about this sort of thing, what's the difference between the North American Grasslands Conservation Act and Farm Bill? Well, the Grasslands Act would be implemented by the Department of the Interior. Farm Bill is implemented by the U.S. Department of Ag. Mm. And so, what's the substantive difference? Well, the Farm Bill programs are designed to help producers while helping conservation. A North American Grasslands Conservation Act would be designed to help conservation while helping producers. Mm. And so it's just a level of emphasis. So a Farm Bill program, NRCS sets something up countywide, sits down, waits for a landowner to come in the door. Maybe they're in the right place. Maybe they're not. Maybe it's the right package. Maybe not. Whereas the Grasslands Act, Department of Interior, they can go knock on the right landowner's door and design a custom program for the best person in that county to conserve that habitat or that species and then pay them to do it. That's kind of, it's a much more surgical approach. And that, and that's why Wetlands Act has been so good because you've had Farm Bill programs complementing Wetlands Act programs and we've moved the needle. We need that in grasslands. Yeah. So can we give an, an example or two of how the, the Grasslands Act could play out and how that would improve habitat on the ground? What kind of mecha- ne- mechanisms are in place? Yeah. So again, similarly, uh, it would be contracts with private landowners okay. to grow um, prairie Native habitat, grass grasslands forest, habitat, yeah. and, so, and so again, that's why you know some as we've been approaching uh, Republican senators saying, "Won't you support this?" And one of the questions is, "Well, how's this different from a farm bill?" And again, just the way I say it's, you know, it it similarly some you know farm bill programs can be designed like CRP and less prairie chicken habitat thirty years ago. They can be designed and implemented in a way that moves the needle, but really more often they're designed to help producers produce more and, oh, by the way, help conservation. So we kind of had a happy accident 30 years ago for lesser prairie chickens. Under a Grasslands Act, it might be the same kinds of actions that you theoretically could implement under a farm bill, but you do it by design under a Grasslands Act, and you do it exactly where you need it. You don't open a county-wide and wait. You go knock on the right landowner's doors up front and spend your money where you get the biggest bang for your buck. Got it. And so they actually serve as a great complement, farm bill programs with, say, Grasslands Act. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then you could get you can get more of that mosaic of habitat improvement. Yeah. That's right. That's Very right. Cool. Yeah. As you know, we have a lot of upland bird hunters 
listening to this show primarily and the lesser prairie chicken being a species that nobody's hunted for the past 20 years or so what might we say to upland bird hunters listening as far as you know why we should be concerned and and what parallels exist here i think we've hit on a lot of that throughout the conversation but let's hit on it again ted yeah in a nutshell so you know most people don't know this but the first stated purpose of the endangered species act uh that congress wrote into the law is that americans want to conserve the ecosystems upon which we and all other species depend Mm. We depend on grassland ecosystems. We depend on clean water, clean air, healthy soils, healthy vegetation, healthy wildlife species. We don't want to see dust blow to our nation's capital like we did in the 1930s. And so that, and by the way, lesser prairie chickens are emblematic of that in the southwestern Great Plains. If you have lesser prairie chickens, you have clean water, you have healthy soils, you have carbon sequestration, you have all those values. And so to me, it is incredibly wise of our... (laughs) Uh, uh, our nation in 1973 to pass a law that says our job is to conserve the ecosystems upon which we and all other species depend. So uh, that that first and foremost, but also more um, more specifically to us upland bird hunters, you know, we talked about the romance of journeying west and hunting sage grouse. Same thing with prairie chickens, right? I mean, we all love shooting grouse. You know, we like shooting chuckers, but you know, they're introduced species in in modified environments in specific areas. But who among us doesn't dream of you know? If you hunt up whitetails back east, who doesn't dream of going out and hunting muleys or, or elk out west? Or, yeah. you know, if you hunt pheasants in Iowa, who doesn't dream of going out west and hunting wild grouse, you know, in the Great Plains or in the sagebrush mountains? So uh, those are all reasons, I think, why we, all of us as upland bird hunters should care and should work hard uh, to conserve these habitats. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the next natural question is, what can and could we do, Dead? Yeah. Job one, reach out to your elected representatives, especially if you have a, a Republican senator on the Agriculture Committee. <laughs> and urge them to uh, support North American Grasslands Conservation Act. But also more specifically with lesser prairie chickens, just let them know it's unacceptable to end up with an endangered species in this situation. And let's make sure that our programs, and, and particularly, they, you know, the, the most well-funded tool we have, right? We already have money appropriated under the Farm Bill to move the needle. Mm. Advocate to your elected representatives to go to the USDA agencies and say, hey, please sharpen your tools and implement Farm Bill programs uh, in a uh, strategic, focused, and sufficient way on lesser prairie chicken country to move, uh, to move the needle like we already did once 30 years ago. We can do it again. Uh, we just need to have a collective will to do it. So advocate, advocate particularly to your elected representatives, and especially if you lived in, in the southwestern Great Plains, go to go to those folks uh, and, and say, please, please conserve the ecosystems upon which we and all other species depend. Yeah, it's it's bigger than the lesser prairie chicken, but uh, we know what lies at in the hearts of of the minds and listeners of the Birdshot Podcast, and that would be uh, prairie grouse species. <laughs> Yeah, and, and let me let me say I, I worked with so many beautiful landowners over my career, and, and especially right now in the southwestern Great Plains. In fact, Grouse Partnership right now is assembling a group of landowner leaders, a dozen of them across the five state range of lesser prairie chickens, to provide focused advocacy along the lines that I just asked your listeners to to do the same thing. So we've got lots of passionate landowners that want the same thing that we as upland bird enthusiasts want. Yeah, uh, well, let's make this happen now, and visit uh, grousepartners.org. Okay. There's a short article with, with a lot of links to some of the things that we spoke about. I imagine that would be available at grousepartners.org as well. Yeah. Okay. And we also have a Facebook page too and, and uh, Instagram. Got it. Well, those will be 
duly linked in the show notes. And uh, Ted, I want to thank you again for taking the time to join us here on the Birdshot Podcast. It was great to have you. Enjoyed speaking with you. And thanks for educating us on the current status and hopeful future of the Lesser Prairie Chicken. Yeah, well, great questions. Great job on your part, you know, bringing this conversation out. It's been really fun. And uh, thanks for your listeners for their time. And let's do all do what we can together to conserve critters and our future for our children's children. Well said, my friend. Grousepartners.org. That is Ted Cook. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Birdshot Podcast, everybody. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. That does it for this episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt and Final Rise. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, and share. And we'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.